The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Okay, today um, the scripture reading will be from 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12. Um, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregard not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the reading of God's word. Morning. Let's uh, let me pray. Lord, we uh, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you'd open our hearts, our minds, our ears, our eyes, our hearts to see, to receive, um, to be encouraged, and to encourage others. Uh, we thank you so much for your word and uh, the fact that it never returns void. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. It's cool to be here. It's, uh, there were a few years ago that in my faith, I started really um, becoming disillusioned with the world, and America in particular. And it's easy to let the, the mainstream media pollute um, my mind and my heart and, and my hope. And a couple things happened where some younger people I, I, I came in contact with them, and, and they just had their hand to the plow, loving and serving without reservation, and it completely renewed me um, to where I sit here with, with the campus outreach people, and I just rejoice uh, that I see a generation coming behind me who has a resolve, who has a hunger, who has a thirst. So it's just cool being here with you, and uh, so I just, it, it's good, um, wanted to share a couple things about myself. Um, you guys, some of the campus outreach people probably don't know. My wife and I, Kate, were the first family to sign on with DOXA. Randy gets this call, and I go to Randy, and it was funny because I didn't recall this conversation with Randy, but, but I said basically, my wife and I prayed, we talked about this, and, and I went to Randy and I said, hey, we're going to sign on with DOXA, but it has nothing to do with you, so don't take it personal. And so Randy kind of looks at me like, what does that mean? Like, you're here. That's good. Like, and that's where we joke with, with my family of, of uh, I had more than five, but the five of us who were attending, that's why in the beginning of Doxa, if the Shanks weren't there, half the congregation was missing. And so it, it's been really cool. And so when Randy was sharing a couple weeks ago that he had this fear, like he would step forward in this calling, that um, 
nobody would show up. I never had a question about it. I, I was unwavering in my confidence and belief that Randy was called to lead in, 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 in establishing DOXA. What my fear was is that as they came, we wouldn't be prepared to love and care. And, and so it's interesting today that this morning that I, that I get to teach on uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The caption of this, this teaching is when love motivates. So that's just kind of the big picture where we're going. Uh, three sections and they all deal with motivations. The first is motivations for more. Then motiva- motivations for purity. And then motivations for love. So the, the, the three places we're going to walk through, the first motivations for more, and then motivations for purity, and then motivations for love. So obviously you got an idea where I'm going this morning. I will confess I did not put my underwear on backwards this morning. <laughs> now if you weren't here six, eight weeks of the last time I taught, so I'm up here and, and I, I was running all morning doing all kinds of crazy stuff and I realized leaving the men's room last time that my underwear was on backwards. So, that, so as I left the bathroom, I knew it was going to come into play. So I'm halfway through teaching and I start reversing all these words and I'm like, okay, confession time. Uh, you know, the words are reversed and my underwear is on backwards. Let's get over it and move on. So it's not on backwards. I am relieved. It is much com- more, more comfortable on the regular way, by the way. Just, I don't know if that matters to you, but obviously it feels good to me. So, so I want to ask this question. We're talking about when love motivates. And, and I ask questions because a lot of times in life, um, I'm a lawyer by, by trade. Um, and so people come to me and I say, what do you want? Why are you here? And it's amazing to me how often people kind of get this blind stare. They're angry, they're fearful, they're frustrated, uh, they don't know which way to turn. So I start picking it apart. And, and simple questions some days make me look at where I am, what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, and where I'm going. So really this morning, I, I want to pull us back and ask some questions. What, what's going on? What's fueling our fires in life? What are, what are we looking for? So I want to ask some things, just an opening. What are the motivations for us as human beings? What drives us? What fuels our passions, our desires? What gets us out of bed in the morning? And, and so honestly, think this through, because I'd like to present an image of who I like, I'd like you to believe I am, and some days that has nothing to do with reality. And the problem is, is that my family's watching, my friends are watching, and the world is watching, and, and that I, as a believer in Christ, have, have an image to project, and it's not the image of my agenda, it's the image of Christ's agenda. And if I don't keep my eye on that, it's very easy to wake up in the morning and for you to see my agenda, and it has nothing to do with Christ. And that's part of why we, we collectively worship weekly, why we develop prayer lives, why we have time in Scripture. These things to continuously remind and refresh and renew what is our motivation today. So as I was preparing, it was really making me look at some things too. So what are things that motivate us? Are we motivated by money? Sometimes it's, it's power or recognition. Um, sometimes some of us are goal setters, that if we don't have an end in sight for some particular thing to attain, we kind of wind up running aimlessly, so we set goals, and that goal is what drives us. Some of us are motivated and live to please our spouses. And again, that, that's, a, I believe, a holy and a just thing 
in a proper biblical context. And these things, again, aren't bad. They're just questions to say, where, what is driving us? Some of us are motivated. We live for our children. Some of us are motivated simply for more, bigger, and better. You know, I, I grew up in a home where money was really tight. And I got to be honest, it definitely had a bearing on me pushing myself through school and going on to grad school. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to live in a home to say, we can't afford to do this. You can't go to camp this year. I can't go here and do that or whatever it is. That, that was a feeling that I had. That I didn't like the feeling. And it had a profound impact on how I chose to live my life in terms of getting an education and working hard and doing some things to just make money, period. So, so that may motivate some of us. Some of us are motivated by thrills. You know, skip all the glitz and glamour. I, I want to feel my heart pounding in my chest. That gets me out of bed in the morning. Some of us are motivated to make an appearance. I had a friend of mine, it was really funny, uh, and, and I probably have to be careful. Years ago, when I lived in Mississippi, I had a friend, and um, you looked at the guy, he was a great-looking guy, but his appearance, it drove him. How, how it motivated him to present an image that, that was pleasing to the eye in all truthfulness. And, and that did something on the inside for him. Some of us are, are, are motivated um, to have the right type of car or the right dress size. Uh, maybe not me on the dress size, so don't, don't worry about that this morning. Uh, but some of you out there might. Uh, some of us are motivated that we want to be in the right neighborhood. Maybe some of us are motivated to win. Just to be number one, it doesn't matter. Being second doesn't count in our life. Some of us are motivated to seek and attain comfort. Just, just to, to say, I, I just want to shut it down. I, don't bother me. Let me put this on a different level. Some of us are motivated to survive. Some of us have came from hard places. Um, have dealt with profound adversity, abuse of all sorts. And some of us are just motivated to say, I'm making it. So what motivates you? What makes you tick? There's a story of an old cowboy riding a trusty horse, followed by his faithful dog along an unfamiliar road. The man's enjoying the new scenery when suddenly he remembers dying. And he realizes that the dog beside him had been dead for years, as well had his horse. Confused, he wondered what was happening and where the trail was leading them. After a while, the cowboy, the horse, and the dog came up on a high white stone wall that looked at fine marble. And at the top of the hill, there was a, there, there, it was a tall arch with the golden letter H that glowed in the sunlight. And standing before it, he saw a magnificent gate in the arch that looked like the mother of pearl. And the street that led to the gate looked like gold. And he rode toward the gate, and as he got closer, he saw a man at a desk sitting to one side, parched and tired from his journey. He called out, excuse me, where are we? The man answered, this is heaven, sir. Whoa, would you happen to have some water, the man asked. Of course, sir, come right in, and I'll have some ice water brought right up. And as the gate began to open, the cowboy asked, can I bring my partners in too? The man at the gate responded, I'm sorry, sir, but we don't accept pets. Cowboy thought for a moment and then pulled his horse's reins away from the gate and turned back to the road and continued riding his trusted dog trotting by his side. And the question for the cowboy, 
is what motivated him to pass up the drink of ice water. Just a question opening. I usually do that to you guys, tell you a little bit of a story, keep you awake now, hopefully, Lord willing. No, I'm joking about that. So I want to pick up, I want to pick up with where we are in Thessalonians. And if you haven't been here before, I want to just kind of put this book in context, kind of get it up to speed. Paul on his journeys travels through this town and, and spent a maximum of a month here, was run out of town rapidly, um, made some enemies quick, obviously. So Paul heads off to Berea, another town. So it was really just a short stay with, with these people. Some commentaries say just three weeks. Um, but he came in there, preached the gospel, and got run out of town quick. So he goes off to Berea quickly, had, had to escape the town, actually. And the Thessal- Thessalonians, if, if you're under six, by the way, it's Thessalonians. It's okay in the book of Palms and the book of Job. So if you get these, these big words confused, don't worry about that. So, so he gets run out of town, and, and he shows up at Berea, and the Thessalonians actually sent people to go after Paul in the next town he was in. That's when you know you got problems, by the way. So Paul leaves Timothy and Silas in Berea, heads over to Athens, and then winds up settling in Corinth. And it's from Corinth that he starts thinking about this, gets, probably got some information back from Timothy. And so he writes this letter, and there's a handful of factors that kind of motivated it. Um, Paul, leaving in a hurry, was worried that some of the rumors and some of the information that started to fly, he wanted to clarify his purpose for there, the mission, the agenda, that it was God and it wasn't something personal for him. Timothy probably brought back some questions saying, hey, some things happened here and we're worried about it. One of them was probably that a member had died and they were wondering, where is this guy? What's his spiritual fate? So Paul's got a question outstanding there. Um, By the time Paul writes this letter, though, something really unbelievable has happened in the church and the place has just ripped. It, It has taken off. So part of Paul wanting to write a letter is to simply express his joy and his gratitude directly to these people for their faithfulness and how quick their reputation has spread. Just to say that a boy, he just wants to encourage and, 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 and keep that enthusiasm going. He certainly also wanted to give them a little bit of a backstop to reaffirm some issues with regard to morality and Christian behavior. And part of the problem is, is you're in a culture where sexuality is, you know, I look at America today and I think that we've got real issues, but sometimes when you kind of step back, um, boy, in this age when the letter was written, the place was a toxic moral dump where you had women that had a standing in society that were lower than slaves. So they were objects that men would gratify themselves with. They set up all kinds of rituals, all kinds of festives, all types of things where literally that if you had a physical desire, um, your access and ease at which you could gratify yourself sexually, uh, I don't want to say it was more prevalent or more possible, but probably it was. Um, We still have segments of our culture that um, would probably frown upon and I say segments because I think certain areas of the country, it doesn't frown upon it anymore. But it, it wouldn't be as open and as condoned. And again, I'm not saying it's worse or it's not worse. I'm just saying it, it was just more prevalent and more socially accepted. Um, so he wants to clarify some of this in particular with the sexual stuff. And also he wanted to simply backstop them again that the church would be subject to some type of attack. Um, and, and to... Um, kind of just give them, fortify them again. 
So we pick up in chapter four with really two issues. The first is he's expressing a joy and a gratitude directly to the people for their faithfulness and love. And the second thing is he's doing a little bit of reminding about Christian behaviors. Um, Before we get into that, I want to take just a little quick detour because some of what Paul's talking about is what we would classify as works-based. We can get tangled up sometimes when you hear about how a Christian should act, to think that there's a correlation with that and how we get right with God. And so I want to clarify this. Just basic simple truths of Christianity, what we believe as Christians, people who, who say, I take God's words literal. We believe that God is holy, just, sovereign, the author of life, and is over all things. So, so God is in, in high regard to our belief system. That God, secondly, created man in his own likeness and image, that he has placed expectations on man, and that man is to have his sole aim to live, to please, to honor God, and enjoy the fullness of life. The third thing is that man through Adam rejected God's holy and perfect plan for man, and because of sin, humanity has become separated and alienated from God. The fourth thing is that Jesus Christ, we profess and believe God's one and only Son, took upon humanity, meaning God became flesh, took upon humanity, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, chose to take upon himself the condemnation due to us, sinful man, for our sin against God. That Christ was crucified unjustly, crucified on a cross, was resurrected on the third day, and has satisfied the wrath of God in place of the wrath that we should receive for our sin, okay? So what do we do on our part? Our part is to simply accept and receive based on faith to acknowledge we are fallen, sinful, and broken and alienated from God and to accept in faith that we have been reconciled to God through Christ's death and resurrection, So the question becomes, what did we bring to the table? And the answer is, nothing. And and that is critical to understand because I can't work my way to heaven. That's the real dividing line in all of religions that that separates from Christianity and every other religion out there. Every other religion is going to tell us, you have to do this to be right with God. And, And the catch with that is that it completely fails to take into account the massive problem with sin. That, that sin must be punished. Now people say, oh, God is love, God is good, he'll overlook my sin. Well, if you're in a courtroom and there's a guy who, who, who is murdered and raped, let's say a Nazi war criminal, better. And the Nazi war criminal comes into court and says, well, yes, your honor, I was a Nazi war criminal and I said thousands of people to their death. But I've been a good man and 60 years has passed without me, let alone getting a speeding ticket. I've paid my taxes and I've been faithful and married to my wife. If the judge said, well, because you're a good man and time has passed since your horrible actions, I'll overlook the offense. How would we classify that judge? Just or unjust? And I can tell you quickly, we would go ballistic. We would say the passage of time has no bearing on the mitigation or the lessening of your act, meaning the offense against humanity and the murdering of millions of innocent people, whatever it is. And so the issue becomes with us and God. 
the problem with sin. And that me being a good man or me paying my taxes or being faithful to my wife or giving or collectively worshiping in my church and living a sacrificial life does nothing to fix the problem with regard to my sin and being brought before a holy God to account for my sin. And I want to make that clear because we're going to transition into some behaviors and it's very easy to think that those behaviors might have some correlation with making me right with God. And it does not. What a great thing, by the way. Does that not like lift the shackles off our shoulders and say, whew, goodness, because I had a bad day yesterday. You know, what happens if the last week of your life is a bad week? Holy atoning blood of Christ has fixed it. I'm fine. So, having said that, and getting this out of the way, now I want to pick up, I want to pick up um, with, with what happens here. For us as Christians, we receive this gift uh, of, of atonement for our sin. Not only that, but we are adopted as children into the family of God. We become heirs, eternal heirs, and are given eternal assurance And so what happens here is that we receive this, and there's an unbelievable transformation in life. But if you're like me, a week after you professed Christ, you bang your foot into the wall, and guess what comes out of your mouth? Like me, a profane word. I go, ooh, that didn't look very good. And so you hear these, we know what we've received, and I know that God has called us to holiness, but the problem is in life is that we're messy people. I'm still broken. I'm still banging my foot against the wall, and the wrong word is coming out. But something happens miraculously as we continue to persist after the receipt, this new birth, this conversion in Christ, is that we start living out our life. And through kind of stumbling along and trial and error, things start to happen to us. Where all of a sudden the standards of right and wrong are changed. Where all of a sudden our priorities on what's really important in life starts to, what, what I thought was important isn't important. And, and what, what didn't matter to me at all previously starts to become important. And slowly through this growth in faith, the person of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit starts to bleed through and into my existence. Where all of a sudden I wake up and find myself wanting things that I didn't previously want. And that the things of God start, start becoming the things of Jonathan. And so where Paul is coming in at this point is, is that picking up with, these, with, with this church, trying to kind of, first of all, encourage and say, well done. But secondly, to backstop one of the areas that was becoming very problematic. So with that, we will, we will open up now. And I spent a lot of time there, but I don't. The worst thing that could happen is that, that somebody could be here who doesn't understand Christianity and thinks that you've got to do something to get right with God. That's heresy. It's heresy. And I don't want to mitigate the need to grow in our faith. But I can't do anything to fix the sin issue between me and a holy God. And the problem is, as I start to fix my behavior, I start to think there might be a correlation between me and my behavior and being right before a holy God. And the problem is, is that down the road, the potential to wake up with toxic, damaging theology increases dramatically. And then you get somebody you're sitting next to in church who thinks they're, 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 they're holier than thou and no earthly good. 
And that potential is wired into my existence. So it's one of those things that I kind of throw a flag up and say, be careful. Because the more we do, the better we do, there's a propensity to say, oh, aren't I a great guy? Which is a lie. We might do some things good. We might be all right. We might get along. We might love. We might care. But it doesn't fix the foundational problem between me and a holy God. Christ did that. All right. Motivations for more. Reading verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. Finally, brethren, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus as you have received from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So it opens up by saying how you ought to walk and to please God. So there's the catch. He's saying you got behaviors, and I want you to do a better job with the behaviors. As Christians, we have a code of conduct. We are to love one another, refrain from immoral conduct, serve others, especially those in needs. Work with honesty and integrity. Prioritize family. Arm ourselves with God's word. Assemble regularly for worship. Be prayerful and be a people that seeks to honor God with our time, our talent, the truth, and God, our worldly treasure. So Paul's saying, I've given you a heads up on this and do, do more. You know the actions. You know the behaviors. Now do more. And, and they were acting in accordance with what they were told. So he is simply encouraging this. And so that passage, this first passage, says, Finally then, brothers, we, we ask and urge you, in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And, it, and it's interesting because Paul's objective is kind of like that as a parent. When you come home, you ever do this, come home and say, Mom, I did great, I got a B plus. Do they say, great job, and they stop talking? What do they do? Oh, you could have gotten A, Right? You win the track meet. And you say, I won it with this time. And your father says, well, that's five seconds off your best time. Wait a minute. I won the track meet. So the question becomes, why is it that that our parents, when when you do something well, seem never satisfied with that? And it's kind of interesting because when you see us created in the likeness and image of God, and if you've had a parent that reflects some of those attributes, they're never satisfied with where we are, generally speaking. And I don't mean that universally, but they're just not satisfied. They always think you can do more and more. And so what happens is that if they have a belief that I can extend beyond my reach, I find myself achieving those things I could not otherwise achieve because somebody had a belief in me that was greater than the belief in myself. And that's what's taking place. That's what takes place with your parents, so you don't have to be angry at them anymore if you've been traumatized because of that. You can get over it. You know the answer now why they tortured you in that manner. They see more in you than you can see within yourself, and they encourage that above and beyond. You know, when, we squeeze, when you squeeze grapes, does the winemaker say, well, I got 80% of the juice out of the grape? No. He squeezes the thing until every last drop is gone. See, until there's 100% taken from us, it's not good enough. It's not adequate. So Paul is kind of raising this bar and, and lifting it, saying, you know, you can, do, you can do better. So let me just ask you a quick question. Is there a place in your life where you know you can do better? Has God convicted you? Do you feel that you've been called to an area where you're saying, I'm, I'm, I'm doing enough? Have you, have you said that lately? Well, that's a painful statement, by the way. You know, I'm doing it. No, 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 it's not enough. 
Because you wouldn't have to justify, I love the statement, he who is not guilty need not defending. You follow me there? See, if I've given 100%, I don't say, well, I did the best I could. I walk away knowing I took a swing at it and I gave it everything I had and I'm done, I'm moving on. But when I sit here trying to explain to you why I've done a good job or why I made an adequate sacrifice, why I didn't need to go the extra mile, the problem becomes that I didn't go the extra mile. And every one of us in Christ, there is never a bar where we give enough where we are kind enough, where we are holy enough, where that, that bar is never fixed in our walk with the Lord. And the truth is, thank God for that. Thank him for that. Because you'd wake up one, dead, one day in this bed of mediocrity. And that's a miserable place to be. To say, well, I've, I've, I've done okay. That has nothing to do with biblical excellence. That has nothing to do with serving a holy God. That has nothing to do with tapping and accessing the resources that flow from the throne of God. Those are the resources that back us. And if you think that through the maker of the heavens and the earth, the God who spoke and the sun showed up is the God that backs our ministry here at Doxa. Overhead or not, don't matter. It's the God that backed the church in Thessalonica. It was the God who indwelt those early believers that were, that were walked to their death for what they believed in. That same God is the God we worship and bank on today. Motivations for growth and purity. And I kind of slash this. I can hold you guys. We're in the second section. Um, I called it purity because I don't like the word growth. Growth almost sounds like if, if I can. Growth can be an insult to purity. And I had in my notes written down growth and I didn't like it. I'm like, oh, I don't like that word. So let me pick up verse two. For you know that, it, you, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, that this is the will of God, your sanctification. And that's a big word, so if you're not familiar with it, let me explain a little bit. In a very simple term, it is the state of growing in divine grace as a result of a Christian commitment after conversion. The state of growing in divine grace. That's enough for the, the definition. The state of growing in divine grace. But let me, let me, let me go beyond that. So the state of growing in divine grace. A generic meaning of sanctification is the state of proper functioning, which really kind of changes this a little bit. To sanctify someone or something is to set that person or thing apart for the use intended by the designer. To set it apart for use as by the intended designer. So a pen is sanctified when it's used to write. Eyeglasses are sanctified when they improve sight. And in the theological sense, things are sanctified when they are used for the purpose God intends. So this process of sanctification, it's really through trusting and obedience. Trusting on the finished work of Christ and then obeying the leading, prompting, and guiding of the Holy Spirit. That we become sanctified, meaning that we are serving the purpose of the intended reason for our existence in creation. So human, uh, human being that is sanctified 
therefore, is when he is living in accordance with God's divine and purpose. The Greek word sanctification uh, means actually holiness. So to sanctify would mean to make holy. So a lot of moving parts there. So Paul talks about this, that this is the will of God, your sanctification. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So there, there's the problem area, that, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of the lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So it sounds like there they're saying, be sexually pure, that separates you so you don't behave like those who have not experienced this relationship with God and who are acting with no moral parameters. And now this is where it becomes interesting. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in the matter because the Lord is an avenger of these things as we are told beforehand and solemnly warned you. So it says that there's this issue going on with sexuality and then it tags that that no one transgress and wrong his brother in the matter. Now, it's interesting, some of the language, the King James says that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. There's another passage that talks about the same wording, another version that says that each of you know how to take a wife for himself in holiness and honor. So the issue with sexuality is that you take a spouse. And so the, the concluding part of this passage makes the reference that no one transgress and wrong his brother. So the implication here is that if you are sexually involved with a woman and that she subsequently gets married, that your act with her will be seen as a transgression and wrong and a defrauding against the brother who married the woman. And so the passage concludes, and this is a little bit of scary works-based theology here, because when I looked at this, I went, this is a little uncomfortable. The passage continues that no one transgress and wrong his brother in the matter because the Lord is an avenger in these things. Doesn't sound like a lot of grace there. Now, so if you're the brother who's transgressed a future man by having sex with his future wife, it says the Lord avenges this. And that should make us a little uncomfortable. And the big deal is that marriage is, is, is the pinnacle in which God displays his relationship with the Father and Christ's relationship with the church. If you want to see the culmination or the picture of those relationships, we are to display that in the marriage that we have with our spouse. To see the fullness and the enormity and the magnitude of those relationships, God says, look to marriage on earth. So now, do you understand what a big deal it would be to be messing around with somebody's future wife that is supposed to be displaying the holiness and the purity. And God's saying by having sex with her, you're defrauding him, the future husband, of the holiness and purity that is to depict the picture of Christ's relationship with the church. And I went, ooh, I don't like the way that sounds. You know, I don't like the way that sounds. It's uncomfortable. It should be a good warning for us in our churches as we hold up a standard of sexual purity. And we live in a culture today where if we saw purity, and I'm going to say this for myself, if we saw purity, we probably wouldn't recognize it. We live in a culture that is so, so saturated and polluted sexually, myself included. You know, I'll never forget, I was in New York City a period of time ago, 
That's the new Sodom and Gomorrah to me. I was in New York City, and I see in Times Square a 40-foot picture of a naked full profile of a woman. And not a man with an eyesight wearing burlap and dust cloth on his head saying, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean eyes, shame on me and shame on you. There is no concept of us holding standards to, to, to that, to a level of biblical purity. And I may sound, why I say this is that when I kind of step back and I look around, advertising on a 55-inch high-def flat-screen TV, would we allow what we see on the advertisement to take place in our living room? And everybody would say, I was watching an advertisement with a woman on a pole twirling, scantily clad. And I didn't take my shoe off and put it through the screen. I don't even, in, in hindsight, I don't even think I said anything. I didn't flip the channel. I just waited for the next program to come on. What's up? Hello? Is anybody home? If that person came into my living room and did that on a pole mounted from the floor to the ceiling, my wife would have a fit. Yet because it's not in 3D, but it's just high def, okay, just high def, not in 3D, it becomes acceptable. And I make that illustration because I think as time goes on, the conviction I'm having is increasing. And I thank God for it. And I look at my boys and feel like I've completely dropped the ball with regard to that matter. Maybe not in in, in holding up marriage in high regard. Maybe not in living a sacrificial life. But in that specific particular area, and, and I walk them through the, the basics of holiness and purity and that stuff. But, but does my son not flinch when he sees the same picture? And I'm going to be honest, I don't think so. It's just we become immune to it. And if that doesn't grieve us, you know, it worries me. Because there's a direct correlation between the purity of my heart and the effectiveness to allow the Holy Spirit to walk through me, to minister and to love and to care for those who walk through that door. And through my front door. I love the song we sang. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come fill this place. Come fill this place. Not mostly, not partially, not in three particular areas of my life. Fill the place. Stem to stern. Motivations for love. We're going to go quick now. Uh, Verse 9, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. I I just went, yay, God. I'm loving it. To imagine this letter being written to you about how you minister to those in your dorm, in your church, in your home, in your church. And this is a reality. It's a standard that we can have. You want to compliment, strive for this. 1 John 4, 7 tells us this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Boy, so much theology there. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. You know, at the end of the day, all this, the tra- 
if there's a love that I have for God, purity is a byproduct. Tithing is a byproduct. It's incidental when there's a love for God. Because the balance of these actions are symptoms or byproducts of the presence of his love. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this way, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation or a payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. So do we love like this? What motivates a love like this? There's a story of a little girl laboring to carry this big, heavy baby boy, and a man walks up and states, isn't that baby too heavy for you? To which she responds, no. He's my brother. And when you become a member of God's family, the love for the membership simply comes with the package that we should love. Do you think if my brother today had a problem feeding his family with the means I have today that they would ever go hungry today? It would be be incomprehensible to think that those in my family I would not care for in this manner. How much more so us within the body of Christ? There's so much in the last couple verses here. Um, Verse 10. But I urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. There's that, that bar. He just knocks it higher. And Paul concludes verse 11, urging them to aspire to live quietly, to mind their own affairs, to work with their hands as he has instructed them, that they may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And there's two big deals, that there are logistics in our faith that says we're more effective when we owe nothing to anyone and we benefit or we witness outsiders, people who are unbelievers. That that there's a correlation with our capacity to move in our faith. That being self-sufficient at some level. I could spend... Boy, so the, the last couple of verses here, there's so much here, and it's aspire to live quietly. You know, that's a totally different, that is such a different meaning to me today at almost 50 than at 30. Because at 30, I want the world to know who I am, and at 50, I'm thinking, I hope you don't know. <laughs> because if you, take the cap, if you take the covering away, it's toxic inside this house. No good, no good thing dwelleth in this house. The heart is exceedingly wicked and untrustworthy above all things. So let's just be quiet about that, Jonathan, and move about my business, and nobody will notice, right? That's how I feel today. And what a, what a you know, it's kind of funny how time in our faith and in our walks allow us to have simple clarity. And again, I'm so grateful for what clarity I have today, and that that clarity was through people. When you clear the bar, you look over, and there they are raising the bargain. You're like, wait a minute, to have those people. I love Hebrews uh, 10, 24. says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. There's an old King James Version where it uh, says James is encouraging uh, the, the believers, and he's got a knife poking him in the tail. You know, and there's something in there that says, I need somebody who loves me, but does it accurately with the truth. 
I hope you have those people in your life. Fine. If you don't have somebody who's going to tell you the truth, search out somebody who will. The cowboy thought for a moment sitting there at that arch. Looked at the mother of Pearl Gate, contemplating leaving his friends behind. He grabbed the reins and swung the horse back toward the road and continued riding, the dog trotting by his side. After another long ride at the top of another hill, he came to a dirt road leading through a ranch gate that looked like it had never been closed. As he approached the gate, he saw a man inside leaning against a tree and reading a book. Excuse me, he called to the man. Do you have any water? Sure, there's a pump right over there. Help yourself. How about my friends? The traveler gestured to the dog and horse. Of course, they look thirsty too, said the man. The trio went through the gate, and sure enough, old-fashioned hand pump with buckets beside it. The traveler filled his cup, the buckets, with wonderful cool water and took a long drink, as did his horse and dog. And when they were fully walked back to the man standing beside the tree, what do you call this place, the traveler said. This is heaven, he answered. That's confusing, said the cowboy. The man down the road said that was heaven too. Oh, you mean the, you mean the place with the glitzy gold streets and the fake pearly gates? That's hell. Cowboy said, doesn't it make you angry when they use your name like that? No, not actually. We're happy because they screen out the folks who'd leave their best friends behind. And I ask us the question today in closing. We're not in the salvation business. We're in the love business. And to those in our family, to those at our workplace, to those that we cross every day who are lost, who have no hope, who are crawling over corpses looking for something more, bigger, and better, and they're never going to find it, Do we stop to give them the truth that if you know God, what comes out of us? To know God, to know God is is to love. And these people whose paths cross, we love them through the power of the Holy Spirit. We know that this love for them is taught by God. And we're called to love them sacrificially, to love them extravagantly, to love them prayerfully, to love them with kindness, to love them unjustly, to love them anonymously, to love them persistently, and to love them without reservation. You know, I've had two people that in recent memory that that treated me in a way that I immediately wanted to respond with venom. And according to the world, would have been wholly justified to take a sledgehammer out and pound them. And you know the next thought that came to me when I realized, I was hurt. And I realized that, that, that something has affected my heart. Where I immediately became aware of something I have, which they don't. And it was the love of God. And I don't sit here anymore and say, good riddance, you've been a pain in my tail. You'll get what is coming to you. Because if I thought that, And if that were the standard for me to receive the love of God, where would I be today? Where would I be? And at the end of this day, this this show is moving quick. It's moving quick. 
The question becomes for us today, will they know us by our love? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for words that um, I hope they were just from you. Lord, I pray for the people that I see that anger me, that, that you would show me a way in which they could, that they, they could receive something from, from you through me. Lord, I, this is my prayer for our church. This is my prayer for our, our campus outreach friends. This is my prayer for humanity. Um, it is by your grace that I can say this prayer. Father, bless these guys today. Encourage them, renew them, lift them up. Let them see when the bar is raised, you did it. And let them know, let them know that they can rise to the occasion. We praise you and thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.